Hello and welcome to the Legal Frontiers podcast from the School of Transnational Law uh, of Peking University. Uh, the podcast in which we examine the intersection between law and the transnational challenges of our time. My name is Stephen Minnis. I'm a member of the faculty at uh, the School of Transnational Law, STL. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Yue Lu, uh, who is a lecturer in law at STL. Uh, Yue is a, a graduate of UC Hastings and Fudan University, and he has previously been a volunteer legal advocate uh, for urban refugees with Asylum Access Thailand in Bangkok. Uh, Yue, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to talk to you. It's, it's, great, it's great to talk to you. So uh, we, we are colleagues at STL uh, speaking remotely currently due to circumstances, uh, but I wonder if we could just start off, if you could introduce yourself, tell us a bit about your pathway to STL and, and what you're working on these days. Uh, as you said, I have my JD from UC Hastings in San Francisco. Uh, I'm a senior lecturer and the coordinator of the Transnational Legal Practice Program here at STL, which is part of our JD curriculum. Uh, I mainly teach two courses. One is uh, American-style legal writing research and oral advocacy, sort of the traditional 1L course that's uh, offered in most of the JD courses in the States. Another is empowering trauma survivors in legal services. Uh, I'm also in the process of developing some uh, programs that hopefully could better help our students improve their English skills and uh, uh, reach a deeper understanding of the uh, culture and the people that are impacted by the laws that they study in our JD program. That's great. And, and empowering, legal, um, empowering trauma survivors with, with legal services. Can you tell us a bit about that program? Uh, it's, a, it's a relatively short course. Um, I'm thinking, I'm doing some experiments with it. I'm thinking about maybe one day extending it uh, to add more practice for the students to, um, you know, do some more mock interviews uh, with trauma survivor clients. Right now, basically, it's a 10-hour course. I hold uh, one two-hour session per week for the length of five weeks. And we talk about the sort of trauma that um, survivors would have and the impact of trauma on them in their sort of inter interactions with their lawyers and how we can do better to cope with that, to help them, to gain their trust, to help them uh, tell, them, tell their stories more accurately, and uh, to help them sort of to empower them help them understand that they have the strength to sort of leave the trauma behind and make their own choices in the future. Yes, and it, I mean, it's such an important thing for lawyers to be trained, uh, to be sensitive uh, to the, the particular uh, circumstances in which trauma survivors uh, are in. Uh, so that's, that's very important work. Um, now, you, you descri you're described in your in your profile as, as passionate and an advocate about uh, for the survivors of domestic abuse, human trafficking and violent crimes, as well as for asylum seekers fleeing persecution. 
So I wanted to ask you, uh, how did you become interested in issues uh, around asylum seekers and human trafficking? I think it's the answer to that is probably the same answer I would give to the question of like, why do you want to go to law school and things like that. I think the reason I went to law school was because I always sort of cheered for the underdogs and I wanted to fight bullies, um, but I never really quite had any clarity as to, you know, how to do that or, you know, how best to do that or whether I'm doing the right thing. So I want to get some clear perspectives as well as the, the tools to kind of be a, a, the part of a project that aims to minimize the human suffering. So the second summer break in law school, I got a summer internship at a public interest organization called Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach. Uh, I actually only picked domestic violence as the field uh, and worked under a family law attorney. Uh, I remember I represented a, an Egyptian uh, immigrant woman in a divorce case where the husband was emotionally abusive and uh, financially also uh, violated his fiduciary duties. So that was uh, sort of the first actual case that I worked on. But as you can tell from the name of that organization, Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach, we have a huge uh, immigrant client base. And I became interested in the, uh, in the immigration topics because my first clients were all immigrants and I understood that uh, immigration status had a serious impact on people's lives. Before that, I think I always, for the first maybe two years in law school, uh, maybe one and a half year in law school, uh, I kind of treated myself as a guest in the United States and never really thought about my immigration status or my like uh, student status. I uh, really didn't care about immigration issues, but those client stories helped me understand that, you know, immigration status can, be in, can, can impact people's life, their career fulfillment, their chances to build a family, even their mental and psychological health. After that summer break, I went back to school and I joined uh, the Refugee and Human Rights Clinic uh, at Hastings. And I worked on a real asylum case and actually learned a lot about working with trauma survivors. And then I sort of just went back to the organization that I worked in that summer and kept working on immigration cases uh, like DACA, TV, the DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was an Obama policy, and TV and U visa, which were uh, offered to people who probably didn't have status, but they suffered uh, or they survived trafficking or they survived violent crimes and to encourage them to sort of uh, report the cases and help the law enforcement in uh, policing these uh, crime, criminal uh, issues, uh, these visas are offered to them. And I also worked on some cancellation of removal cases, which uh, sometimes would also involve uh, human trafficking issues or asylum issues. So I, I really love the work. Well, it's, it's, it's such important work. 
a lot of people uh, who who lack uh, lived experience of this, it, it comes as such a, a shock, but it is true how one's immigrant status or, or lack of immigration status um, wholly determines their ability to, to move around, to to work or not work or or even to go to school it's it's something which is confronting millions of people around the world and the problem is growing rather than uh, getting smaller i had a look just in preparation for our discussion at at the latest figures on refugees and asylum seekers uh, from the un high commissioner for refugees the unhcr mm-hmm. uh, and and the figures really tell the story at, at the moment there are an estimated 26 million refugees, over 45 million people who are internally displaced, over 4 million people who are asylum seekers, another 4 million people who are stateless, uh, and 84% are hosted in developing countries. This is often framed as a political challenge in places such as Europe and Australia and the United States, but it is really a challenge predominantly uh, in the developing world. Uh, and, and that is also something that you have had experience working on. Um, as, as I mentioned, you were previously a volunteer uh, legal advocate at Asylum Access uh, Thailand uh, in Bangkok. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, what is Asylum Access and, and how you got involved? Asylum Access is actually a, an organization that started from San Francisco. And since then, they sort of branched out and have... Uh, uh, different office sites in different countries and in different cities. Uh, what I can remember is there's an office in uh, San Francisco, there's an office in Thailand, in Bangkok, and there's an office in Tanzania. And, and, and I, I'm sure there are more, I just can't recall the exact places. The goal is to sort of help uh, refugees access the protective channels that the UNHCR has set up, basically helping them access the asylum-seeking process in, uh, at the UNHCR, uh, especially in countries where maybe the country itself doesn't really have a refugee status determination process. It's not in their immigration laws. So the UNHCR has to set up offices in those uh, places to help them assess the credibility of the claims to really uh, recognize who's a refugee and who's not and to sort of put them into the pipelines for resettlement. So our office uh, was in, like you said, it was in Bangkok and Bangkok has a really huge uh, population for urban refugees. And uh, what we did was sort of help people and and train people to uh, do their asylum interviews with the officers at the UNHCR. We also sometimes screen people uh, to see uh, vulnerability and see the necessity to give full representation, individual representation, to interview them for specific detailed facts in their stories to help them write declaration to present to the UNHCR, uh, sometimes to train them to conduct interviews, um, to write legal briefs. And other than that, uh, we also respond to protection issues. Sometimes people maybe 
realized or they found out that their persecutors um, had reached uh, Thailand and are looking for them. And they, they're panicking that they need protections. Or sometimes it's just unintended consequences from this sort of migration and then isolation within a community is that sometimes you just uh, have uh, sex and gender-based violence from your own community. And uh, sometimes you just get uh, uh, secondary abuse from the people that you're living with. Uh, so they also uh, would need help because Thailand um, did not sign the uh, refugee convention. So they, they do not really protect uh, people without immigration status at all. So they are afraid to go to the police because if they go to the police and they find out they don't have status, they would probably be uh, taken to the detention centers. Um, so sometimes we would, um, I, I was also a protection officer. I would respond to crises. I would interview people, suddenly just show up at the office. You know, I would talk about uh, what happened to them, why they are afraid and what they need. Sometimes they would need money, which, you know, we don't necessarily have. Sometimes they need shelters, uh, which our office also don't have, but we can sort of connect them to sister organizations or to local organizations um, that have housing that might be able to help. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing that surprised me was a lot of times I had to say no to, uh, to these people uh, just because they're sort of the, the help they're seeking in our office. Sometimes they're not legal. They're asking for medicine. They're asking for money. They're asking for shelter. And uh, in Bangkok, it, it, there was just not a lot of, or, or at least not enough resources to go around. It's an extremely complex situation for a young lawyer to find themselves in. And uh, again, as, as you mentioned, Thailand, a, a country which is not a signatory to the, the Refugee Convention, has not assumed the obligations of that convention, uh, but a country that is hosting uh, hundreds of, of uh, thousands of people uh, classified by the UNHCR as of, of people of concern, uh, including over 475,000 stateless people uh, and, and others. Where, where did the people come from that you were trying to assist? Was it a diverse uh, group of, of clients and, and people in need? Yeah, uh, we, we did have a diverse client base, uh, but uh, when I was there, most familiar with uh, uh, Somali refugees and Pakistani refugees, uh, because when I was working there, those were two of the most, uh, two of the largest groups that we had to interact with. And I think right before I went there, or maybe the year before I went there, um, there, there was a huge need from Syrian refugees, but I just uh, wasn't part of that period. So I uh, rarely dealt with war refugees. Uh, so mainly Somali refugees, which includes Somalis who escaped from Al-Shabaab, the terrorist group, or mm -hmm. Somalis who were from minority clan and uh, they, they were escaping from the abuse and persecution from 
majority clan members. And for Pakistanis, uh, the majority of them when I was there were Christians who escaped Pakistan for fear of uh, the anti-blasphemy law in Pakistan. And uh, uh, a smaller population were uh, Ahmadi Muslims who sort of received uh, discrimination and persecution from Sunni uh, Muslims, uh, at least from the stories that I heard from my clients. Uh, and some of those reasons which you uh, described that, that led uh, to those people leaving their countries of origin and, and coming to Thailand, I think uh, remind us uh, that when we talk about a refugee, uh, at least in a legal sense, we are talking about something uh, quite specific in, in international law. And uh, it's good to remember that the, the Refugee Convention uh, defines a refugee as someone who is unable or unwilling to return to their country of origin, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted uh, for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, uh, or political opinion. So, so those are the categories of people who can claim refugee status uh, under international law. Um, now, when, when you and your colleagues were uh, endeavoring to help uh, these, these people, you mentioned helping with the uh, asylum interview process. Uh, and I wanted to ask you if you could explain the importance of the asylum interview from the perspective of an asylum seeker. Yes, so the asylum seekers, um, as you can imagine, usually have gone through a lot in their lives. Maybe it's been a while since somebody has listened to them uh, and taken them seriously, and listened to their stories, and they probably have a lot of things to share. Um, but on the other hand, they have no idea. Maybe, maybe they do, maybe they did some uh, research online, but most of them have no professional knowledge as to what constitutes a refugee and what sort of um, information is relevant uh, to the definition of a refugee. So it is important for them to actually you know, not get carried away with just uh, dishing out their grievances um, or the things that uh, most scare them uh, that are not relevant, maybe. Uh, it's more important for them to discuss the legally relevant things. And uh, the other thing is, you know, different uh, asylum seekers have different educational backgrounds, uh, different cultures. People from different cultures might have different habits when they tell a story. Um, maybe, you know, it's more natural for people from certain cultures to not tell the story in a chronological order, but for somebody to understand the story and uh, really get, you know, sort of the accurate information and, uh, so as to find it credible. You have to tell the story from in, in a chronological order. All of these things, you know, the, the refugees uh, or the asylum seekers, they, uh, don't necessarily know it uh, from the beginning. If they're, you know, just going to the UNHCR and uh, applying for the status on their own. Um, so that's where we come in. We actually have weekly trainings 
sometimes we sort of remember something. Our memory is triggered by smell. Our memory is triggered by hearing a sound. Sometimes it's a taste. Sometimes it's a sight of something. And our memories of one event doesn't really come back to us chronologically. Uh, sometimes it's just in pieces in the wrong order. So it's natural for somebody who's recalling a traumatic experience to just say whatever comes to mind. So the story, if it's not, if they're not trained to tell their story, the story can be in the wrong order. Um, sometimes maybe uh, you know we restore inaccurate memories. Sometimes uh, the things that we talk about about uh, the same event can be inconsistent if we don't really think about it. Um, that's why you know it's important to. Uh, take all of these factors uh, into consideration when we prepare clients for interviews and sort of talk to them through um, the story that they're telling and um, help them tell it in more of a chronological order. And if there's inconsistencies, they're explainable. We can, exp uh, can sort of ask predictable questions to them so that they know oh, there's a, the, the way I told the story, there is something that uh, somebody might think, oh, that means it's not credible, but I have a, an explanation for it. But if we don't go through this process, maybe people won't know how to respond when they're confronted by the officer. So that, that's another very important reason for them uh, to, act, uh, to actually receive some help uh, before they access the interview process to sort of guarantee that they actually uh, are able to tell their story accurately, to explain themselves accurately, and to let the um, officers know exactly what went on, and to guarantee that uh, they have a chance, they have a genuine and opportunity to, to, for their stories to be heard fully and considered fully. And if, if, if we don't do that, and if, if uh, somebody is at the interview and they would talk to their inter uh, interpreters uh, in a sort of disruptive way. Uh, they would tell their stories not in a chronological order. They would get defensive when, they uh, when they're confronted with uh, inconsistencies and not give uh, the valid explanations that they actually have. Then there's a higher chance for the officer to get annoyed, to sort of suspect that the story is manufactured and it's not credible, and that would hurt their, their chances for the case. Indeed, and I think that's so important, helping asylum seekers to communicate effectively, uh, truthfully and effectively, uh, is, is a massive part of the advocacy task. And, and we also have to look at it uh, from the perspective of the administrative decision maker, uh, who is often presented with not a great deal of information on which to make uh, their decision. And for the asylum seeker to be able to cogently set out their history, the case narrative, uh, is just so important. Yue, before we move on from your experience uh, in Bangkok, I wanted to ask you more generally what you took from this period of, of work, what you, I suppose, what you learned from it, but, but also how you would advise uh, other lawyers who are wanting to work on asylum seeker and refugee matters on the basis of your experience? 
I think one of the most memorable things that I learned um, is sort of the strength and resilience from the clients, from the sort of the stories that they heard. There's one example. I kept using this in my class, but I'll, I'll sort of uh, tell it briefly so that uh, people won't know a lot about it. Uh, it's, it's a girl who uh, tried to escape from Somalia because the father is trying to force her to marry somebody that she doesn't even know. The first time somebody helped her to get away was a woman got, uh, in the family, helped her get away. The woman was shot and she was captured and taken back. And then the second time, another family member, another female family member came back and helped and uh, helped her escape this time success, uh, successfully. And you, you just imagine the sort of the, the courage in that, you know, knowing that he got shot for helping and you still do it. And it's just amazing. And, and you know, a lot of these clients were, you know, young and they were sort of dejected and depressed. Sometimes they definitely have symptoms from the trauma, they sometimes would have very low energy, sometimes they have low motivation. But I'm really grateful that uh, in some cases, I would see them sort of feel more of more security when they come to the office, when they feel they're, they're more at ease, they could have conversations, they, they could make requests, maybe for a cup of water, um, they, they could, you know, smile at you and talk about, you know, day-to-day -day issues, talk about their children. Uh, just, you know, they sort of find their strength and their power within themselves that um, were, you know, previously deprived from them. And that usually just gives you a lot of hope and a lot of power as well. Um, another thing, taking care of your the advice for lawyers is taking care of yourself and learning to relax. And you cannot always take the work uh, back home with you. Although that's definitely, uh, you know, what I did a lot of the times. Um, I, you know, I always had trouble ever since law school, I had trouble relaxing um, or switching gears. And I think it's, especially important as uh, somebody who works with trauma survivors. You don't want to have that. You don't want to get that vicarious trauma. You don't want to stay tensed up all the time. You have to figure out a way to relax yourself, to separate yourself from the cases, to sort of get a, a, another perspective, to think about yourself not as their saviors, not uh, just also to not think of yourself as, you know, somebody who's so important to these people's lives that if you don't take a break and, you know, take care of yourself, their lives are going to be ruined. I think that's a, um, that's a perspective that I had to learn. And, uh, and it's also very important because if you don't take care of yourself, your efficiency at work, your quality of work is going to uh, be impacted and it's not good for your clients. You have to take care of yourself first to be able to take care of others. I think that's very important. Yeah, I think absolutely the, the perspective that, that you're describing here, not, not having a, a savior complex, but, and, but also 
being open to learning from the client, uh, learning from uh, refugees and asylum seekers. And as you described, the the courage and resourcefulness uh, is is often extraordinary. Uh, what what people are able to do uh, in order to exercise their legal right uh, to claim asylum is is often uh, inspiring. And I think that that is also an element to this. We see refugees and asylum seekers demonized in different parts of the world when the reality is is often so different. Uh, and, and how about, of course, you've, you've had experience in the United States as well, and there have been some interesting cases um, over there that, that you um, can tell us about. One of those cases, I think, uh, came out recently. It's a Supreme Court case, DHS versus Thoracegum. And that's, a, that's an asylum seeker who came through the southern border, and he's a, he's a Tamil asylum seeker. Tamil is an ethnic minority from Sri Lanka. And uh, he got captured about 25 yards north of the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. And it was captured by border patrol, border protection officers. And uh, he was put in expedited removal. And uh, procedurally, he went through sort of the, you know, he claimed asylum An asylum officer interviewed him and determined that the facts are credible, but he just doesn't meet, or that there are certain facts missing and he doesn't meet the definition of a refugee. And then procedurally, uh, it's required that the supervisor of this officer would also have to review the case and the officer concurred. And then he was referred to an immigration judge. And in the US, immigration courts are sort of you know, part of the administrative branch, not the judicial branch. So the judges are sort of employees of the attorney general. These decisions are all made on the sort of administrative or executive branch. And uh, eventually through this three-tier process, and he was deemed not eligible for, for a refugee status. Um, so he was put into an expedited removal but uh, he's claiming in this case that he, uh, he claimed that the officers clearly didn't understand the country conditions that, uh, you know, of Sri Lanka and uh, applied a higher standard of proof and wanted more facts from him. And uh, as, we un- as we all know right now, people at the southern borders, a lot of them do not have a lawyer. And we already talked about, you know, the importance of you know, legal help before you go to an asylum officer. So uh, anyway, he wanted his case to be reviewed by a court in a judicial branch, but uh, the Supreme Court has decided that he is not entitled to that right. And I think the majority opinion is written by Justice Alito. And he says, uh, number one, you know, the habeas right uh, is uh, for seeking release from detention, but uh, he's seeking asylum relief, uh, which is not exactly deten- uh, from this detention. So uh, it doesn't really trigger habeas rights. And also, uh, according to uh, Justice Alito, um, he already received the due process, which is the sort of the three-tier process that I talked about. And uh, it, 
and and that means that uh, denial of uh, a court uh, appeal of this case is not in violation of due process. So uh, this case just sets up sort of an, a precedent where people were detained at the border. Uh, they can be uh, fast-tracked into expedited uh, removal uh, without any representation from lawyers. They can just be questioned by asylum officers and, and, and those decisions uh, the officers make once they determine that they don't have a credible fear of persecution back in the country, uh, then they would be deported very fast. So this is pretty worrisome. I think and, uh, right now, the, I think my reading of the case is that it just applies to people who are found at the border. It doesn't really apply to people who are already in the country, been living a while, people who, who are sort of permanent residents but don't have uh, legal status. It doesn't really apply to them yet. At least that's sort of the concurrent opinion says uh, from Justice Breyer and Justice uh, uh, Ginsburg. But uh, I think that if President Trump gets reelected, the administration would uh, put more, uh, put on more of an effort to sort of extend this case also to those people and sort of fast track the deportation of people who don't have legal status in the country and uh, undermine the asylum seeking process um, that we have had in the past uh, you know, decades. So that's and, uh, and what what uh, what do you think that means for the United States' compliance with the Refugee Convention? They they could say you know they're justified because they have already determined that these people are not refugees through a legal uh, and justifiable process. But I think you know without thorough examination of the, the decision making, without any checks. Um, especially considering the administration's hostility towards immigrants and especially towards refugees. Um, you know, it's questionable whether the United States is complying with their obligations under the convention and the protocols. Yes. And what I want to sort of discuss is another case. I think that case is from a Disney. DC Circuit case. It came out. It came out after the case that I just talked about uh, on July 19th, uh, called Grace versus Barr. Um, this is about another set of policies proposed by the administration. So the administration had been given advice to officers that people who claim that they escaped from gang violence or uh, from spousal domestic violence who could not receive any state protection or intervention. Such claims, you know, they, uh, they would come into the states and apply for asylum. And uh, the, the advice, the policy is that such claims would be frivolous. I uh, talked about the Refugee and Human Rights Clinic at Hastings. And the, uh, my professor who sort of led that clinic was Karen Salo who was also the director of Center for Gender and Refugees, uh, which is also hosted by Hastings. And she was sort of the pioneer who won several cases on asylum 
for domestic violence survivors who could not get state to intervene and protect them. Um, and then he helped on a case uh, called Matter of AB, which is a Board of uh, Immigration Appeals case. And that case set the precedent for domestic violence survivors who could not get state protection uh, as a particular social group uh, for particular countries who whose sort of the culture or assumption of women is uh, particularly hostile. Um, but the Trump's administration's policies sort of sought to erase those protections. But uh, this uh, DC circuit case that just came out on July 19th uh, struck down uh, these policy suggestions um, in the case called Grace versus Barr. And uh, so right now, uh, I think the possibility to claim a domestic violence as a valid asylum claim is still there, but I predict it's the same as the travel bans on Muslim uh, people from Muslim countries. Several circuits would find it unconstitutional or in, uh, illegal, but eventually would probably get appealed to the Supreme Court. And it's, uh, I'm not really optimistic whether you know these policies will be uh, upheld or not eventually. So uh, I wanted to talk about this because I wanted to sort of end on uh, you know how we started talking about my experience on domestic violence because just this past week uh, there are a lot of posts on social media about Turkey's femicide. Uh, I think this the, the number is in, in the last month or in this month in july there's already been 40 women killed by uh, intimate partners or spouses and now we have about four billion people in quarantine and we have people who are trapped with their abusers and i think that's also a very serious problem um Yo, I, I just wanted to ask you one final question about the the current global situation, the effect of the pandemic and all that has followed uh, on refugees and asylum seekers. And, and we've seen, uh, obviously, border shutdowns around the world, difficulties with travel, but also um, people who are in refugee camps being exposed uh, to potential catastrophic outbreaks of the coronavirus. Uh, we've seen people being turned back in borders. Uh, the, the current UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, has called it a crisis unmatched in the UNHCR's history. And, and I just wanted to uh, note something that the Assistant High Commissioner, Gillian Triggs, recently said. Uh, she noted that refugees fleeing war and persecution should not be punished or criminalized simply for exercising their fundamental human right uh, to seek asylum measures to tackle COVID-19 do not justify arbitrarily detaining them on arrival, uh, which not only worsens the misery of people who uh, that people have already suffered, but also undermines efforts uh, to limit the spread of the virus. Uh, so clearly this is a crisis on top of an existing crisis. Um, how do you see it, the current situation? You know, for people who are sort of trapped in their camps, uh, I think uh, re with respect to COVID-19, they can't really socially distance themselves from each other. If one person gets infected, then 
you know, there's not a lot of uh, ways to prevent it from getting spread around. And even not just refugees, even lower income households during this uh, quarantine period, they would suffer some, you know, uh, downsides of uh, lack of resources, uh, lack of, you know, if you don't have health care, which the refugees certainly don't, and if uh, the camp's hygiene is not very good, that these are all factors that would impact sort of how much protection they have. And also on the psychological level, living in isolation without a lot of, it, it's, it's a pandemic, everybody's worrying about themselves, not a lot of people are looking at them anymore. And they, in camps, they probably don't have a lot of connectivities to the outside world, they probably don't have internet. So the sort of the mental isolation is also pretty harmful. Yes, well, it's, it's certainly made a, a difficult situation for so many people even more difficult. Um, and, and also the, the cases you mentioned in the U.S., well, it's been a busy four years for the courts and it's, it's only July. So we'll see what, we'll see what comes out next. It, it's been a fascinating discussion, Yue. Um, I'm indebted to you. Thank, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, for this discussion. Thank you so much for uh, allowing, me, uh, allowing me to talk about this on this platform. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and thank you to our listeners. Thank you for listening. Um, and this has been the Legal Frontiers podcast from the School of Transnational Law. Until next time, stay safe.